Vlog Talk Radio. the last show, you guys heard it, um, now it's here to stay, bitch, but that's not going to hold me down, because uh, there's too much stuff to talk about, now, the breakfast cereal, John Hickenlooper, announced that he's running for president, um, I will not be discussing that on this show, I'll do it on the next show, I'll do a little breakdown and whatnot, um, but I just wanted everybody to know up front that this is the first time in American history a breakfast cereal is going to run for president. So it's a little historic, which is why it, uh, it's worth mentioning at this point. But yeah, breakfast cereal John Hickenlooper announces his presidency, but you will not be getting a fun, comical segment about that today. 
You'll have to wait until the next show for that. Um, but there's still a lot of stuff to discuss. We got Bernie officially launched his campaign in Brooklyn. I'm going to show you uh, the part of his speech where he gets personal and takes a shot at Trump. I find that interesting. With, with Basically, with no other politicians, do I care at all about their um, personal lives because they try to put that front and center like they're special. Whereas Bernie, he spends 98% of the time talking about the policies. So when you actually learn a little something about his personal life, it's interesting. So we're going to talk about that. Um, I want to talk to you about the new trick. I mean, it is bad. It is messed up. I despise it. But there's this new trick that... Uh, corporate media and corporate Dems are now using against Bernie. You guys have probably seen like bits and pieces of it here and there, but uh, they're weaponizing the issue of reparations against him. Now, I'm going to explain why um, this is all cynical, malicious garbage, and I will not be holding back in that segment. That's for damn sure. Then I got a bunch of hilarious uh, clips of Donald Trump's speech at CPAC. We had to break it down because it's so funny. Um, and then also, you know, in some ways today's show is a little bit like a, like a throwback, like a secular, like a Kyle Klinsky show from like 2013, because we got Glenn Beck in the show today. Like we got a bunch of, uh, characters who, you know, we haven't discussed in a while, but anyway, Laura Ingram, some like people like that. Anyway, uh, without further ado, let's get started. Uh, I have to pull up my... Bernie Sanders speech clip. Forgive the voice. Uh, you could probably tell from the sound of my voice that I'm indeed sick, congested like a mofo. But anyway, let's do this. So Bernie Sanders officially launched his campaign in Brooklyn. Um, I have to show you the part of his speech where he gets personal and takes a shot at Trump. Now, you know, as I mentioned in the intro, I don't care about the private lives of politicians. I really don't. Um, I care about their policies, and I care about whether or not, in my estimation, they're actually committed to those policies and will fight for those policies. So that, to me, is the end-all, be-all. But what you'll notice with a lot of the other candidates is they fill in the blanks with with their lack of substance. They'll take their personal story and, like, put it forward as if you should care as if you give a shit about what mommy and daddy were doing in fucking 1967. So, and that's no, you know, no offense to to all these candidates. I'm sure they had lovely families. But the fact of the matter is, that's not really all that relevant. I mean, it's a little relevant, but it's not all that relevant in terms of what policies they support. So, honestly, if there was somebody who came from a super wealthy background, but all of their policies were fighting for the people and you know, they have a record to back that up, I would totally back that candidate over somebody who came from humble beginnings but sold out and is now a full corporatist. So it's just not all that relevant, the the background story, but you'll notice all the other candidates put it front and center. Bernie does not. In fact, he stays away from that like the plague, which I like about him, and I think, you know, more politicians should do that, and they should focus on their job. Like, imagine any other job that you do you're not allowed to just, like, fill in the blanks with your personal story and, like, to try to get people to like you or get off your ass if you're not doing your job well. You know, imagine, like, an accountant has a meeting with you and is like, and my dad, Gary, in the year 1960, and it's like, you're like, I don't give a fuck. I don't care. Are you going to do your accounting stuff for me or no? So, 
Uh, anyway, I digress. Let's watch Bernie uh, briefly touch on his um, personal life here and then take a pretty awesome shot at Trump. Let me say a few personal words. As we launch this campaign for president, you deserve to know where I came from because family history obviously heavily influences the values that we develop as adults. I was born literally a few miles away from here on East 26th Street in Kings Highway. And my family and I lived in a three and a half room rent controlled apartment. My father was a paint salesman Was twenty 
five cents a week. Damn. <laughs> That's a strong line. That's a really strong line. Um, Trump is a fraud. I mean, it's it's just obvious. The guy really was raised with a silver spoon in his mouth. Now, again, it'd be one thing if he was raised with a silver spoon in his mouth, but then he went on to do the right thing for the people and push for the proper policies and all that stuff. But that's not the case. You know, FDR famously came from a wealthy family, and he was called a traitor to his class. Donald Trump is not a traitor to his class. Uh, in fact, he lives for those pats on the back from the establishment and the powers that be. That's why he packed his administration full of Goldman Sachs, and that's why uh, you know his tax bill – he was bragging at Mar-a-Lago, like, oh, you guys got a nice tax cut because of me in a room full of, you know, insanely wealthy people. But this line, uh, listen, again, in my mind, I don't think a lot of personal stuff um, even goes over well with the public. Like, I don't think it's me who just listens to personal stories and goes whatever. But as far as personal stories go and as far as counterattacks go, you can't get much more powerful than this from Bernie because that really is like polar opposite type stuff. Like, oh, Trump was given basically $200,000 a year every year from when he was born or from when he was 30 or whatever the fuck. I remember reading that story on air. Um, he says my allowance was 25 cents a week. <laughs> I mean, that's like night and day stuff, man. It really is. Um, so I, I, I'm curious to see what happens moving forward in terms of the exact line of attack Bernie decides to take on Trump, because we already know, like, Bert, the, the part about Bernie that's awesome is you already know what he's going to run on. So you know he's going to run on Medicare for all, free college, living wage. Um, you know he's going to talk about income inequality and corruption like crazy which is all wonderful. And that's, in fact, one of the problems with the other Democrats is they don't run on what they're on. They only run on what they're against. But given that we know what Bernie's going to run on, it will be interesting to see what he runs against. Like, in other words, what specifically are his criticisms of Donald Trump and what the Republicans are doing? And how does he frame that? And this might give us a little bit of a clue into uh, what he plans on doing. Um, we already know one of the things Bernie says all the time about Trump is that he's a pathological liar. Um, he, and then he also goes through his thing where he goes, he's a bigot, he's a xenophobe, uh, he's, you know, a racist. And like he doesn't, he, he doesn't flinch for a second when describing this guy with the most unflattering, aggressive words possible. But now we get a hint that he might also do the, do the move where, he goes right for the jugular in terms of the stuff Trump is most self-conscious about. Because remember, again, the problem with Trump is that he says he's a self-made man when he's not even close to being a self-made man. I mean, he said originally, I only got a small loan of a million dollars from my dad to start my business. Now, first of all, even if that was the case, only getting a million dollars? you got to drop the word only from that sentence because it makes no sense. Most people, if they get a million dollars, they're like, holy shit, what the fuck? This is crazy. But it, that also wasn't true. His dad was worth like $400 million. And come to find out, hundreds of millions of dollars were kind of siphoned to him through these tax avoidance schemes. That was a great uh, expose. I think it was in the New York Times um, you know, six months or so ago. Again, we covered it on the show. 
But one of the things he's most self-conscious about is this idea. When he was growing up, he always lived in his dad's shadow. And his dad was an actual intelligent uh, real estate guy. And Donald was always trying to, like, you know, one-up him. And his dad had to keep bailing him out because Trump is an idiot and a fuck-up. There's the famous story of in his casinos, they were going bankrupt because he cut a terrible deal where he was paying an insane amount of interest on it. And he couldn't keep the fucking lights on at a casino where they basically dump money in your lap. So his dad walked in and bought like millions of dollars worth of chips and then left. <laughs> and it was just like, it was like his dad bailing him out basically. So this entire time, this guy, like Donald Trump, if he didn't have a massively wealthy father, there's no way he'd be where he is in life today. No way at all. So since that's the case, he like overcompensates for that. And he acts like, no, I'm, I'm a genius. And I'm the, we have one of the best businesses in the world and I make a lot of money and so I think Bernie senses, he sniffs it out like a dog. Okay, this is the thing here that he's most sensitive about. So, okay, let's hit him on that a little bit. And um, it, the funny thing is Trump likes to brag about, um, he likes to brag about coming from this background and, and having a wealthy, successful father, but me, I'm a self-made man myself as well. And he likes to brag about that. Whereas Bernie is almost doing the thing that way more people can relate to, where he's like, listen, I came from a lower middle class family. And, um, you know, that, that did impact my worldview. And now I, I relate to average people, and I'm going to fight for average people. And it, it'll be interesting to see, like, Bernie has the potential to make Donald Trump just an ultimate flip-flopping mess where he melts down. Like, it's funny because at this point, um, people look at Trump in, in many ways as, oh my God, he really is like an insanely difficult candidate to beat. And it's going to be hard for all these Democrats to beat him. We've heard Democratic operatives now say, I don't see who can beat him in 2020. Um, but the thing is, people are always, they're always biased by the most recent thing that just happened. So when Trump won in 2016, now all of a sudden he seems like, oh my God, he's invincible. But again, we're forgetting he's actually kind of a dumbass. <laughs> so he's a dumbass. And then if he has an opponent who knows how to go after him the right way, where the majority of the time Bernie's just talking about his plans to help the American people. And then when he decides to take a shot at Trump, it's something that's going to fucking land like a, you know, like a, a, a beastly Mike Tyson right hook or an uppercut. He's, gonna be, he's just going to be reeling from anything that this guy's going to say. And he knows how to attack Trump, but also not go in the gutter and, and fling mud like Trump, where... where it just looks petty when you do it, but everybody expects it when he does it, you know? Like, these are somewhat, these are reasonably um, reasonably above-brow shots, even though it's, they're poignant. Uh, whereas opposed to Elizabeth Warren, where, you know, you feel like sometimes she gets, she goes in the mud with Trump, and then she can't beat Trump in the mud, and she comes out looking sillier. Um, so I really do think Bernie is Trump's kryptonite, and I like, I like this speech. It was a great speech. It was a great launch. Um, I know some people who were there, and they said it was an amazing environment. Um, Corin was actually at Bernie's rally yesterday in Chicago, and if I'm not mistaken, he's making like a little video out of it, and he's going to release it on his YouTube channel, Corin's World. Um, so he says the environment was crazy. Ro Khanna was there, gave an amazing speech. Nina Turner was there, gave an amazing speech. Um, we have the opportunity to, to build something and see something amazing unfold in front of us if we if we donate to Bernie, if we fight for him, uh, if we work for him. 
and if we get him over the line here, but he, he's going to hold up his end of the bargain, and he knows how to fight. He knows how to – I think he knows how to win this race. He is the favorite, in my opinion. He's the favorite. You know, my brother-in-law's friend works for this betting company. I think it's overseas. And I was told Bernie's odds when he launched were 19 to 1. So, in other words, let's see if I could do the math on air. Bad idea. I suck at math. You uh, pay $100, and then if Bernie wins, you get 1900 in return, 1900 So they have him 19 to 1. Those are the dumbest odds makers I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I mean, they really are. They just don't know politics that well. Um, and I think they have a, a, a media bias. So whatever like the media is talking about, they think like, oh, they, they're obviously onto something. Those guys don't know Dick. You think Morning Joe knows what the fuck they're talking about? They don't know anything. So, uh, you know, if I was overseas, I'd place that bet in a heartbeat. I would place that bet in a heartbeat. I'd borrow money from my grandma if I had to to place that bet because I think Bernie Sanders is the favorite to win the presidency of the United States of America as it stands today, Um, and a clear favorite at that. So we can't get ahead of ourselves. There's a lot of work to do. A lot of things can happen between now and then, but um, that's my analysis of the situation. So Bernie 2020 is officially launched. He's already running all over the country. And he's already giving awesome speeches. Um, And now you know a little bit about his background. Uh, I think a lot of people were just learning about it then and there. Because, again, this entire time, I didn't really care. I didn't care about his background. I didn't care if he came from a rich family, a middle-class family, a poor family. Don't care. I just know he's fighting for the right things. He has the record to back it up. And uh, he has my support. Okay, next. So I want to talk to you guys about the clever new anti-Bernie Sanders trick that the media and uh, corporate Democrats are are doing. Now, this is actually, this trick works. So it's a little scary, to be honest with you. Most of the time, um, most of the time I see how they angle against Bernie Sanders and it's just useless. And it's almost comical. And it makes you laugh. And you go, really? You think you're going to get them on this? Like the most recent one was Politico, where they spoke to former Hillary Clinton advisors. And they were trying to hypocrisy burn Bernie because they said, oh, he flew on private jets around the country. Yeah, he flew on private jets around the country because it was on short notice and because he was campaigning for Hillary Clinton to beat Donald Trump because you asked him to and because he wanted to defeat Donald Trump. He did like 39 rallies for Bernie. And then how, do, how does Hillary's team re- repay him? They try to shiv him when he announces a run again. And their whole argument is, ha, he was on a plane. And they try, the argument, by the way, is he's also against climate change. But he was on a private plane. Got him. Stop with this nonsense, man. Listen. There's some issues that are top-down issues that have to be addressed by the government, and you cannot address them on the individual level. It's like saying, imagine somebody said in, uh, you know, the 1940s, okay, we're going to take on the Nazis. Oh, yeah? Why don't you take your rifle and go fight them by yourself? Because that's the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard, and we obviously need a mass mobilization to fight them? Maybe. Same thing with climate change. Oh, yeah? Why don't you stop with your 
carbon emissions. Because it obviously, obviously we need a mass mobilization, and obviously this is not something that can be achieved at the individual level, especially since it's 100 corporations that are responsible for 71% of the emissions. So you can't, even if everybody stopped all their personal uh, carbon emissions, it's not going to put a fucking dent into it. So, it, But shit like that does not land. People read it and they're like, shut the fuck up. Allow me to give you a one-way ticket to shut the fuck upsville, bitch. Not interested in your nonsense. So, but here's an issue where, listen, it's sticking a little bit. And it's kind of scary to see because it's such nonsense. So what am I talking about? Well, a few weeks ago, an article came out that basically said, like, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, and I think even Elizabeth Warren they put in the article, but I might be wrong about that. Oh, the new issue that the Democrats are hopping on board with. Reparations. And they have this phoning article. Now, the reality of the situation is this. They are calling it, or at least some of those candidates are calling it, oh, I support reparations. When you read the specifics of it, it's not reparations at all. They're talking about, like, Cory Booker's baby bonds. That's not reparations. Um, I think there's targeted tax credits. That's not reparations. And in some instances, it's not even for the black community specifically. But they're calling it reparations. So what we have here is dishonest politicians a dishonest media that plays along with them and frames this issue as, oh, would you look at that? Cory Booker and Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren, they're outlasting Bernie Sanders. Isn't that great? Don't you want anybody but Bernie? And again, they're framing it as, see, red meat to the base. We have, a, you know, a further left-wing um, position here that, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren are taking beyond Bernie. Now, what's happened since that totally misleading article came out and, you know, the total misdirection on this issue uh, happened, Bernie Sanders was asked about reparations on his his CNN town hall with Wolf Blitzer. Um, He was asked about it in maybe every single interview he's done since he's launched. And... Here's the thing. Bernie Sanders is way too honest to say, no, I don't support reparations, but I support a plethora of policies that'll help the black community massively. In fact, I'm, my policy platform is by far and away the best for black Americans of all of the different candidates. Excuse me. He's too honest to say he supports direct reparations when he doesn't support reparations. Again, the other candidates are not honest, so they're like, yeah, I support reparations. And you read their plan, and it's not reparations. And so, boom, what's the trick? The trick here is, oh, shit, they perceive his weakness as he doesn't do well among uh, black Americans. So let's try to kneecap him further, and let's try to uh, undermine him, undercut his argument as the furthest left option, and, and... the candidate of the people, and let's try to prop up people who are more corporate as being for the people and being for the black community. And then they're trying to feed this narrative of like Bernie Sanders, old, out-of-touch white man, Bernie Sanders, um, you know, not as good on these issues as, as Cory Booker and Kamala Harris and maybe even Elizabeth Warren. And it is as cynical and destructive and misleading and bullshit, um, a smear tactic as I've ever seen 
but God damn it, it's clever and it's working a little bit. Um, now, in order to discuss this further, we have to get into the issue of reparations. Is reparations something the Democratic candidate should support? And is reparations something the Democratic candidate should put front and center? My argument is this. Even if you're somebody who supports reparations, it would behoove you to run on reparations. Why? You want to know what it polls at? 32% popularity. Now, by the same token, uh, take the issue of get, abolishing the death penalty. Even though I'm, I'm personally in favor of abolishing the death penalty because 4% of the time we kill the wrong people, okay, would I be telling a Democrat in the 2020 race to run with uh, and put that front and center? Uh, yes, I, as a candidate, am, am running on abolishing the death penalty. No, I wouldn't tell them to do that. Why? Because uh, the death penalty is actually popular in this country. I haven't seen polls recently, but the last time I saw them, it was about 53%, 54% of the country that supports the death penalty. This is called not being a dumbass and winning elections. This is called use, using your advantages. This is called uh, crafting a campaign that gets widespread support and propels you to victory. And then in the case of the death penalty, if you get elected and then you have the opportunity to do something to stop the death penalty, even though you didn't run on it, yeah, fight to change public opinion on that issue and then do the right thing and and get rid of the death penalty. But on the issues of reparations specifically, it only has 32% popularity. So in some ways, it's like a weird race to the bottom type thing where Kamala Harris and Cory Booker and even Elizabeth Warren are like, okay, we are going to try to do what they think is appealing to to the Democratic base, um, and we're going to call this thing we're doing (laughs) reparations. It's not reparations. By the way, the policies that they're actually fighting for or they say they support, baby bonds and targeted tax credits, I think those are more popular than reparations. So if they were just honest and said, no, I don't support reparations, but I do support baby bonds and tax credits, that would be more popular and would probably get them more votes. But again, they're weaponizing this against Bernie Sanders specifically because they don't want the African-American communities to support Bernie Sanders. Now, in the polls, Bernie Sanders um, is doing phenomenally well with uh, people of color. In fact, he has more support among people of color than he has among white people. And that flies directly in the narrative that you've heard. Now, the narrative that you heard is not complete and utter bullshit. It's just a little bit bullshit. So what I mean by that is this argument of Bernie doesn't do well among uh, people of color or doesn't do well in the black community, that is based on 2016 uh, vote totals. So in other words, it was specifically in southern states with heavily black Democratic populations where Bernie Sanders struggled in 2016. Um, So that's where that argument comes from. Now, again, today, favorability rating, his favorability rating with people of color and, and the black community is through the roof. So my guess is the only reason um, he didn't do as well back then is name recognition, is that at the beginning of his campaign, not many people knew him except the deepest of political junkies. And he was also running against a behemoth who was Secretary of State and former First Lady and was also the candidate who was considered, it was either Obama or Hillary in, in 2008, and a black community voted for Barack Obama. And then, again, fast forward, 2016, they had the, the option now of voting for the person that they was maybe their second choice in 2008. So they're like, okay, we'll go for her. So she had a giant name recognition advantage. And so Bernie Sanders is tr- fighting very hard to take what was his one electoral weakness and, and win. And what's happening is 
they came up with this cynical, clever, crafty argument to try to undermine what he's doing uh, in order to gain more support in the black community. Because Bernie Sanders, in terms of the actual votes, Bernie Sanders kills it in all of the, the Rust Belt states, the swing states, and the area where you can argue a Democratic candidate needs to be most strong for a general election. So since Bernie's already, you know, game, set, match in those places, he's beloved in those places, um, the one area where he needs to, to get a little better, actually you, you could say New York, you could say California, and you can say in the South. So he's working his ass off to gain more support, gain more votes, fight for a platform that helps all Americans, including the black community, and they're trying to undercut him and undermine him by using this issue of reparations cynically. Now, the final point I want to make is this. I actually think it's super condescending to the black community, the way that this issue is framed and the way that it's discussed. Because most politicians, when you bring up black issues, issues that affect the black community, it's almost like they think that black people are incapable of thinking of issues outside of if you put the word black in the sentence. And I don't think that's true at all. You know, I think making the minimum wage a living wage is a black issue. I think being pro-union is a black issue. I think being for Medicare for all is a black issue. Healthcare is a massively important black issue. I think issues of war and peace, that's a black issue. I think Basically, all issues are black issues. Now, are there some instances where specific issues impact the black community more? Sure. Criminal justice reform, for example. It is true that the war on drugs is implemented in a bigoted way. It just is. You can have black people and white people sell drugs, use drugs at a similar rate, and black people are arrested four times more often. So there are real issues in, in terms of mandatory minimums. There, there are harsher sentences against uh, black people for the same crime that, you know, when a white person commits it. So there are real issues there. But on those super real issues impacting the black community, um, Bernie Sanders has the strongest platform. And I would argue that's not even just an opinion. That's an empirical fact. He just has the strongest policy platform to help black Americans. But honestly, all Americans, all Americans. So it, it's a little frustrating how, you have these politicians who pander and who are massively condescending and who are misleading and cynical in how they frame this issue of reparations. And the dominant media narrative becomes, oh, my God, aren't Kamala and Corey so forward-thinking on this issue? And isn't Bernie an old, out-of-touch white man? That's the whole movement. That's the whole point of, of this entire conversation. And, you know, when Bernie's asked about reparations, he, his response is basically, well, what do we mean by reparations? So he's more honest and he's trying to get to what exactly is your definition and, and what, like, what exactly am I being asked to support here? And I want to hear the details and then I'll let you know if I support it. Whereas the other politicians are just standard politicians and they're perfectly willing to be like, yeah, whatever, I support that, even though they don't. And even though the record shows they don't, but they don't care. They just want to, they just want to say what they think you want to hear. And in the case of Bernie, they want to undermine him in the black community. Um, well, listen, I'll be the first to say it. I don't think it's going to work. I don't think it's going to work.
I think that his favorability uh, numbers in the black community already are through the roof. I think he has higher name recognition now, so he's going to get a tremendous number of votes in that community. I mean, it might be somewhat evenly split between, you know, Bernie, Kamala, and Corey, but that might be enough for Bernie to overall take the Democratic primary. Um, so, and then there's also just a logistical question, too. First of all, what is meant by reparations? And then second of all, um, how exact, exactly would it be implemented? And then you also open up a Pandora's box if you, if you come out in support of reparations. In, in no other area of the law um, do you have this notion of collective guilt uh, and, and collective punishment and collective, um, you know, I don't know what the proper word for it is, but collective grace, whatever you want to call it. Because, you know, like, for, for example, when my father died, he died with a tremendous amount of debt. Now, under this logic, um, the logic of reparations well, if it works one way, it has to work the other way. So am I, does, do the debts of the father now pass on to the son? So now, so now I would have to pay for all of the things that he did and all the money that he was in debt? That's not the way it works under the law. You know, the debts basically died with my father, and I was not burdened by it simply because I'm his offspring. So by the same token, okay, however many generations ago, four generations ago, somebody may have been a slave, and then... Fast forward four generations, so now what was owed to that slave is now is now owed to four generations on, because that's that person. I mean, keep it real, was not a slave. Now you can come up with other arguments as to why you think reparations is the right way to go, but that whole notion of okay, we're just going to pass it on collectively from generation to generation, um, whether it be a burden or whether it be a positive thing. If you open that Pandora's box in law, there's going to be so many downsides to it as well, because then immediately corporations will argue, well, if we're doing this collective, uh, collective identity thing, then why not force debts from one generation onto the next generation and create a system that works like that? So, and then also what happens in situations where, let's say, one of the descendants was a slave and the other side of the family was enslaved, do they get like half the payment? And then what happens with instances of, say, Haitians or Jamaicans who are now live in the United States and are Americans, but they have descendants from Jamaica or Haiti, and they experience today the effects of discrimination, like, for example, in the hiring process where it's been proven there's a decent amount of discrimination. So because they didn't have slaves here going back to when there was slavery, therefore they get nothing? even though they're black Americans, even though they're, they're currently living the experience of black Americans and experiencing discrimination, simply because generations prior they didn't have a family member who's a slave, they get nothing now? So there's, uh, my point is, guys, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, problems with that argument, and it's not clearly defined, and we don't know what it means. And uh, just understand, here's the point. There's a reason why it polls at 32%. <laughs> Even Medicare for All, before we even started pushing it and talking about it nonstop, it was already polling at 51%. I remember because we covered it, had to be probably 2013, when very few people were talking about it. Very few people knew about it. When questions were asked about Medicare for All, 51% of Americans supported it. So there's something about that that's like inherently like, oh, that seems to make sense, cover everybody, sure. But when you talk about reparations, there's so many open questions around it in terms of how you would implement it, what exactly does it mean, 
what arguments are we really buying into here to say reparations are okay? There's a reason why it only polls at 32%. So the fact of the matter is, you might say Bernie's not giving a direct answer on that issue, but I got news for you. His non-direct answer is a lot more honest than the total, complete, and utter lie that's been put forth by Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, and Elizabeth Warren. So just know what's going on, guys. They're trying to, uh, you know, and I said it, somebody tweeted the quote to me the other day. They said, hear me, I said, hear me now, quote me later, Bernie Sanders, they will go after Bernie Sanders cynically on identity politics. And that's exactly what's happening today. They're going after him cynically on the issue of identity politics, trying to portray him as an old, out-of-touch white man, when his policy platform, by and large, is the furthest left and the most for the people, and that includes all the people, including the black community. So don't fall for the bullshit. Don't fall for the nonsense. Um, this is the, the correct candidate who's going to do right by everybody, and they're going to try to do everything under the sun to convince you the opposite of that, and they will undermine him in every way possible, no matter how fucked up and wrong the argument is. Okay, next. All right, let's go to Trump at CPAC. He's going to talk about the Mueller investigation. So President Trump, oh shit, I got to change my, whatchamacallit, graphic. So President Trump spoke at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, conference or committee, I think it's conference. Um, And listen, he's done this every year for so many years. And it's his favorite thing to do because it's a room full of people who love him. And he just gets to go up there and kind of rant and ramble. And, you know, it's a little bit of a loose setting because it's all people who agree with him there. So he doesn't feel as pressured to be on script. So he just goes off on tangents. And um, I want to show you a a few parts here of of his CPAC speech. But this one really caught my eye because... I think he's clearly, clearly scared of one of the investigations into him. Take a look. But they fight so hard on this witch hunt, this phony deal that they put together, this phony thing that now looks like it's dying, so they don't have anything with Russia. There's no collusion. So now they go and morph into, let's inspect every deal he's ever done. We're going to go into his finances. We're going to check his deals. We're going to check. These people are sick. (laughs) I saw a little shifty ship yesterday. But the first time, he went into a meeting. And he said, we're going to look into his finances. I said, where did that come from? He always talked about Russia. Collusion with Russia. The collusion, collusion. So what that tells me is, yeah, go ahead. Look into the Russia thing if you want. Cool, dude. But, oh shit, you're going to look into my finances? Bro, chill. Don't look there. That's what I got from that clip. It seems like he's, he's 
he's not really afraid of the Russia investigation because they're not their central claim of like treason or collusion or conspiracy or whatever. That's not going to come through. And that's what I've been telling you from the beginning that that's not going to happen. Um, but the other thing I told you is the most extreme interpretation of what you think might happen on other issues, issues of money laundering and tax evasion and tax fraud and, and all types of insurance fraud, things of that nature. The most extreme interpretation of what you think might happen on those other issues, that's probably correct. I, in fact, I've predicted on this show many times already, and I'll say it again right now, the day Donald Trump is no longer president, he'll be indicted on you know multiple, um, including, I think, money laundering, uh, insurance fraud, tax evasion, things of that nature. Because there's just so much paperwork backing up this fact, so many articles going into detail about it, not even a question, not even up in the air. I mean, I think that there's a good case for the emoluments clause to, be, to use that against Trump, which basically means that under the Constitution, the President of the United States cannot take money from foreign governments because then there's a conflict of interest and maybe it'll work to help them and not in the best interest of the American people. So I think there is a case on emoluments, but even with a case on emoluments, I honestly think there's no way you're going to impeach because so many Republicans are just going to be like, not going to impeach based on that. We don't give a fuck about that. Um, so uh, it's an open question. Can you indict a sitting president? Most legal experts would say no. So then it is, okay, you have to impeach him. But they're not going to be able to impeach on any sort of treason, collusion type stuff. Um, and in order to impeach, it needs to be a crime that was committed while in office. So it could be emoluments because he's taken money from Saudi Arabia and Israel and in return done favors for them and all that stuff. But I don't think they're going to actually go forward on the emoluments thing. That's too substantive, and it closes the door on all these other corrupt politicians. You know, if they're, they're making corrupt-ass deals, they don't want to get their spot blown either, so they're not going to go after him for it and set that precedent. So that, what that leaves is, okay, dude, the day you're no longer president, you're going to get indicted. And I think that's the case, and I think that Trump always drops these little hints as to, like, what he's, okay, what he's comfortable with, what he's not comfortable with, and he's like, shit, they... They changed. I thought that you guys were looking into Russia. Now, all of a sudden, you change it to my financial deals? Man, you guys are sick. They're actually correct to do that. That's what the focus should have been all along. And you're going to be exposed as like a really shady, um, you know, corrupt businessman. And fair game to go after you for that, dude. I'm totally for that. That's for damn sure. In the same way that Trump used to go after Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton for the Clinton Foundation, and man, is that corrupt, and what are you guys doing? Bill's getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to give speeches, and then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton is approving giant weapons deals to the governments that just paid her husband. Like, that same kind of shit is the same kind of shit Trump is engaged in with shady-ass characters and money laundering in Panama, and who the fuck is he connected to, what kind of crazy-ass governments or mafia characters or whatever. Um, and it is kind of like watching a soap opera unfold, but you can sense here that Trump is scared of certain things and maybe not necessarily other things. Okay. I got to take a quick break, guys, because the throat is acting up again. So it's time for some chloroseptic. Give my throat some chloroseptic. And then, uh, yeah, I'll be back um, in a little bit here. And when we come back, I got more Trump at CPAC. And then also there's going to be that story about the bigotry against Ilhan Omar that you're not going to want to miss. Stay right there.
pray. Where would I be without you? Yeah. You know this shit is good because I remember a long time ago, I was told by my doctor, like, yeah, don't use that stuff. I was like, here's what's going to happen. Not that. (laughs) I mean, it just, you need that instant relief. But I guess it's like, uh, who knows? We'll find out it's like the um, baby powder that was giving people cancer, you know? That's the fear, but I only use it when I'm super sick. So, you know, whatever. Throat's killing me, but now it's a little bit better. Anyway, let's continue here. Um, Donald Trump spoke about the Green New Deal. You guys are going to get a kick out of this one. So Trump spoke about the Green New Deal at CPAC. Uh, this was hilarious. <laughs> I'm going to play the clip for you. It's a little bit long, but it's well worth it. So take a look, and then we'll discuss.
I love that for so many reasons. First of all, the Green New Deal polls at over 80% support. So this whole, like, tap dance he's doing, oh, they're so stupid and so out of touch with people. I want to run against that. Okay. Go right ahead, buddy. By all means. (laughs) Like, he's such a dumbass, he doesn't even know that. Like, he's so deep in that Fox News bubble that he doesn't even know that. He doesn't even know that his ideas aren't popular. He doesn't even know that left ideas are popular. By the way, this is where some people might say, okay, so a poll's high with the American people, but among Republicans, he's right. Uh, well, according to the most recent poll, the Green New Deal polls at 64% support among Republicans. So... Listen, I'll give, I'll give Trump credit for one thing, which is um, arrogance and, and, and bluster and belligerence. And those are actually underrated political qualities. In fact, many Democrats would say the opposite, that those are negative qualities, to which I would respond, oh, yeah, he got elected president. <laughs> so, you know, it was great. I saw a great tweet the other day. Competence is massively overrated in politics. Belligerence is massively underrated in politics. That's just true. That's just true. Persistence, always showing up. And he's relentlessly making his case. It's all Green New Deal is bad. The Democrats are stupid. Um, And, you know, the trick is you have to have a Democrat up against him who knows how to fight back against this stuff. Because so many Democrats would buy into the framework of what Trump was saying there and would be like, Oh, yeah, you know, the Green New Deal, uh, that was an idea, and I'm, I'm willing to work to fight climate change, and we got to be open to all ideas. All ideas have to be on the table in terms of how we fight climate change. But, yeah, maybe the Green New Deal is uh, not the right way, and maybe we can compromise. And, like, that's how most of these Democratic candidates who are running for president would respond, and that would be a horrible response. The proper response is somebody who says, you do know it pulls it over 80%, right? You do know over 64% of Republicans support it, right? You do know that if you were around, Mr. President, back when the original New Deal was proposed, you would be one of the naysayers, and you'd be one of the people saying, this is going to cost too much money, and we can't do it, and it's too bold, and it goes too far, and it's too transformative. Well, guess what? They did the New Deal, and it was overwhelmingly popular, and it helped get us out of the Great Depression. So you're wrong, and you have no idea what you're talking about. And it's kind of embarrassing. You want to apologize? Please apologize for knowing absolutely nothing about this topic and making no sense. Please. That's how you need somebody to respond to it. And, you know, I think Bernie would more or less respond in a similar way. And I think um, the other candidates would kind of half buy into Trump's premise and try to talk their way around it and be like, well, we got all options on the table for climate change, but maybe the Green New Deal, maybe you're right about that. And they don't know how to handle somebody that you're not – you're engaging in jujitsu here. You know, they think they're playing checkers. You're engaging in jujitsu, bitch. 
You got to know how to fucking one-up them and, and, you know, to put the move on and all that shit. I don't know anything about jujitsu, by the way. <laughs> uh, uh, it's funny. Don't send that clip to Rogan. <laughs> um, so, all right. Let's go through some of the lies because there are a lot of lies here. Uh, they want to abolish uh, fossil fuels and the whole industry. Me. It's about transitioning off of it, which, by the way, whether or not you want to acknowledge it, is absolutely necessary in the long run because, I don't know if you know this, we're kind of destroying the planet and we're hurling towards climate oblivion. <laughs> kind of an important point. Now, it's not like they always make it seem like, oh, we're going we're gonna, to like, immediately abolish it. Like, next Wednesday, no more fossil fuels. No, you transition off it. It takes time. And when you transition off of it, guess what? You have all these massive new industries that are created. And these massive new industries are going to be, guess what? <gasps> Profitable! So there's going to be a new green and renewable energy revolution that leads to a booming economy. And it's just a matter of who's going to get the patents on these issues. Are we going to let China and all these other places get way out ahead of us? And they come up with the technologies, and then we're buying from them. Or are we going to create it ourselves, and then we're the ones who are selling to the whole world? We have an, another opportunity here to become a manufacturing hub, which I think is absolutely necessary. So, you know, it, it's, really, it's really more of an opportunity, if you look at it from that perspective, than something that's like a burden. I, you know, they're acting like Trump is the kind of guy who would scream about, oh, my God, what's going to happen with the Morse code industry when the telephone comes out. Like, they just invented the telephone, but he's like, what about Morse code? Eh, they want to abolish... My political opponents want to abolish the Morse code industry. That's effectively the argument he's making. Okay, um, then he says there's no more cars. That's nonsense. Um, again, over a very long period of time, you transition off of fossil fuels and go towards cars that can actually run in a way where it's not contributing to the destruction of the environment. I think that's a wonderful thing. Uh, and then, again, another complete lie. They say it ends, it, they want to end air travel. I just, it's unbelievable how they're willing to just shamelessly lie. And then uh, he says, oh, New York City, they're going to have to tear down their buildings and rebuild it all. What? <laughs> Again, he just makes stuff up. They're not afraid to just make stuff up in, in, in service of their broader point. But in this case, the stuff he makes up is incredibly stupid, and his broader point is incredibly stupid. So, again, I think the most important issue here is this. Green New Deal polls at 80%, including 64% of Republicans who support it. That's overwhelmingly on our side, and we have to keep fighting for it, and we have to keep hammering that argument home, because people already agree with it. They understand we're at a transformative time in American history, and we need to take bold action. And then again, probably the single most important point is, don't think that there was an opposition to even just the New Deal, back when the New Deal happened. There was massive opposition to FDR, massive opposition to the New Deal. People made the same kind of arguments that they make today against the Green New Deal. Oh, my God, it's going to cost a lot of money. Yeah, and? <laughs> that's not a point. That's a non-point. So, yeah, it's going to cost a lot of money. Uh, it's going to have a massive stimulative effect on the economy. We are going to, in the long run, rewire our economy, retool our economy, and there's going to be massive growth as a result of this. There's going to be massive job creation as a result of this. And it's absolutely necessary in the same way that the New Deal was necessary to respond to the Great Depression and put America to work and fix our economy, fix our country. The Green New Deal is, is important for the same reason. It'll put a, a tremendous number of people to work. It'll make us a manufacturing hub again. And it'll fight back against climate change. So it's win, 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 win everywhere you look. But they got this dumb BS argument most of them are going to make about, oh, my God, it's so expensive. People said the same bullshit about the New Deal when that happened. So um, 
listen, you just need somebody who's going to know how to fight on these issues and not, you know, capitulate like so many of the candidates. I mean, I'm imagining Cory Booker trying to respond to Trump here. Because, listen, he's actually good at campaigning. Trump is very good at campaigning. Trump is very good at just casually talking. Like, this kind of shoot-from-the-hip style of commentary is massively underrated in politics in terms of the, the strategist class. They should notice that the old school is gone. The 1990s, I'm going to be on script and talk with my back straight and my thumb this way. Like, that's all done, gone, dead, irrelevant, stupid. Nobody wants that anymore. Look what happened to Martin O'Malley, who was that perfect example, that kind of a character. He got like negative 8% in the vote. Meanwhile, you got Bernie, who does really well, and he's just shooting from the hip, too. Except he's talking about things that make sense. Trump is not. But his style of campaigning is actually really, it works. It's really good. So you need somebody who's going to fight back against it. Imagine Cory Booker trying to respond to everything Trump just said there. (laughs) Trump would walk all over him. So, I mean, Bernie's the answer. And everything he said there, when you look at it logically, uh, everything Trump said there is just hilariously dumb. Okay. We're going to come back to some more on Trump in a little bit. But first, let's talk about Ilhan Omar. God damn it. George is killing me, man. Sorry for this disgusting noise you're about to hear. Oh, that's disgusting. You see, the problem is the the position of the congestion. That's the problem. <laughs> it's not totally centered in the nose, and it's not totally centered in the throat. It's like in between. And when it's in between, you have trouble, like, talking and not feeling pain. It's like a, like a rich, vibrant scratch center right in between the nose area and the throat area. Oh, okay. Anyway, let's keep going. Ilhan Omar. So there's an insane story coming out of West Virginia. It involves Justice Democrat Ilhan Omar. And it exposes some intense intense bigotry against her. So this is what sat on display outside of the House of Delegates chamber on Friday during a series of events around the state capitol for West Virginia's GOP day. Look. So for everybody just listening, it says, never forget you said on top, and it shows the Twin Towers and 9-11 when there was the terror attack and the planes hit them. And under it, it says, I am proof. You have forgotten. Now, I want to reiterate, this was shown at the state capitol, or excuse me, outside the House of Delegates chamber for West Virginia's GOP day. And it was just sitting there. And somebody saw it and was like, oh, my goodness, I have to take a picture of this. Now, I was trying to think of like a parallel to this. I can't think of a parallel to this. I mean, maybe you could kind of say it's like if um, if there was a thing of, you know, that, that anti-Semitic cartoon with, like, the Jewish guy with his hands like this and the nose is caricatured and all that stuff, and, like, if that poster was sitting outside or something, uh, I guess you could say it's somewhat similar to that or one of those, like, old-school racist-ass cartoons with, like, the, the black... Uh, caricature with big lips and eating like watermelon and fried chicken and like that sitting outside of the GOP event. But honestly, I don't know. This might legitimately be worse because what they're saying is, and it's not even thinly veiled, 
They're just like, she's a Muslim. She's, like, responsible for 9-11 based on that alone. Like, you said never forget after 9-11, and now you went and elected a fucking Muslim, so obviously you forgot. And the logic of that is just crystal clear. Like, oh, because she's Muslim, therefore she's responsible for 9-11. Because Muslims are responsible for 9-11. Which is kind of like saying, you know... I was raised Catholic, uh, and it's like saying my mom is responsible for the child sex abuse scandal. What? <laughs> what are you talking about? That's insanity. Um, you know, it's like saying, whatever, some random Christian in, in Kentucky is responsible for the Crusades. What the fuck? That person had nothing to do with it. Ilhan Omar had nothing to do with 9-11. She's as American as apple pie. But, again, this is the point, is that this is the, this is the non-logic, the anti-logic of bigots. I mean, these people are massively bigoted. And I think the thing about this that pissed me off more than anything is that this is all happening at a time when poor Ilhan is under assault from dishonest people who are claiming she's an anti-Semite. She doesn't have an anti-Semitic bone in her body. And every single piece of evidence they use to claim that she's an anti-Semite, massively taken out of context and is interpreted in the most, uh, you know, dishonest light imaginable. I mean, like the thing with the, it's all about the Benjamins baby, and they try to say that was anti-Semitic. I mean, hilarious. It wasn't even close to anti-Semitic. What she's saying is money shouldn't control politics, and uh, APAC, the Israel lobby, is controlling politicians. And she's clear, and she says in the same way, by the way, that the Saudi lobby controls politicians. She, calls, she has at least had a half defense of the BDS movement, and they go, oh, yeah, you wouldn't say that about Saudi Arabia. Why are you singling out Israel, anti-Semite? And she's like, actually, no, I would say that about Saudi Arabia. I would do the same thing against them. They're like, oh, well, you're still an anti-Semite. And honestly, a lot of people on the left are pissing me off here, too, because there's no defense of Ilhan Omar for people who should be defending her. You know, people have tweeted stuff buying into the logic of, well, when some people made mistakes and they came forward and apologized and were bigger people, and then others, when they make mistakes, they don't do that. Stop insinuating she actually is an anti-Semite when she's not. It was a bad faith smear all along. All along. And by the way, since, and I said she shouldn't apologize, and she did apologize, and now since I've done that, guess what? They haven't stopped. And that's why you don't apologize when there's a smear. Because you're actually feeding the trolls more. You're saying, okay, I agree. I buy into your framework that, I, in fact, I was responsible and I was guilty of what you accused me of. Well, now, every time you say anything that can even 1% be interpreted as, oh, my God, you're a bigot, they're going to take that and fucking run with it and say, oh, I thought you improved, but you didn't. You don't feed into the smears. So I said from the beginning, do not apologize. And she did an apology. I don't think she meant it because I think she knows deep down she's not an anti-Semite and the way it was interpreted was preposterous. But she did it. And then now as a result of it, she's under constant assault with these stupid BS smear stories. And then as she's facing criticism from her side of the aisle as well, now at the same time you got people fucking putting up garbage, actually bigoted posters like this shit. So she can't win. I'm getting fucking smeared relentlessly and accused of fucking perpetrating 9-11 because of my religion from the right. 
And half the left has just totally abandoned me and acts like I'm an anti-Semite and I'm an undesirable and I'm, you know, I'm a crazy person. By the way, the people who put this up, Act for America, which is they describe themselves as the NRA of national security. NRA of national security. Jesus fucking Christ. So, uh, and by the way, there was another thing that uh, came out the other day. There are death threats that were randomly written to Ilhan Omar in like some bathroom or something. And, and it was tweeted out. And she's like, yeah, okay. See, I deal with this every day. Actual bigotry. And now you're going to tell me that I'm, I'm a fucking anti-Semite because I tweeted all about the Benjamins because I'm against money and politics? Fuck off. That's what she wants to say, I think. But I'll be the one to actually say it because it's true. It's nonsense. And I hate that half of her fucking side abandoned her and pretend bought into this nonsense smear. Oh, you're an anti-Semite. No, she's not. No, she's not. No, she's not. And your non-evidence for that is fucking embarrassing. And now you are feeding into the response where people are more than well, ready and willing to pile onto her all these fucking assholes on the far right and just hit her with the most bigoted attacks I've ever seen in my life. There's no other interpretation of this shit, of the fucking uh, poster of, Ilhan and then 9-11 and uh, you said never forget. I guess you forget. There's no other interpretation than that other than rampant bigotry and xenophobia. And unfortunately, there's much less discussion of that than there is about the fake bigotry of her, the, the supposed anti-Semitism, which isn't even there. So this is embarrassing. People need to realign um, their, their priorities here and realize what the real problem is and what's utterly made up. <clears throat> All right. Let's go back to Trump for a second. You guys are going to like this next story. So Trump pretended to support free speech at his uh, CPAC speech, and um, he paid lip service to it in a rambling, meandering uh, commentary. I want to show this to you here, then I have a lot to say about it. Okay, quick side point. One of my favorite things is when he just pauses mid-speech and, like, looks around. 
It's like he's, uh, you know those like pageants for toddlers where their moms get, are all into it and they get these little girls dressed up in like makeup and put the dresses on them and then they have to act like it's a pageant show type thing. He loves to pause and every now and then look around and sometimes he does like a little strut around the stage and he soaks it in, man. He loves that attention. Oh, give me the life force, yes. That's a side point. Okay, now to the meat of the conversation here. Um, totally unironically, 100% serious, I support what he actually just did. After the speech, he signed an executive order like reaffirming free speech on college campuses or something. Totally support it. Not hedging, no caveats. Totally support it. Totally support it. Now, the reality of the situation is this. I think now every single Antifa chapter, every single you know, group of Black Panthers, New Black Panthers, uh, actual communist groups, uh, Democratic Socialists of America, um, me, all left groups on campuses should invite these characters to speak now. And watch in real time the hilarious flip-flopping that occurs right in front of you. They will immediately change it from, oh my God, did we say free speech? We only meant for fucking like Milo Yiannopoulos and Ben Shapiro and Stephen Crowder. And when we, are, we say we're against political correctness, what we mean by that is we want to be able to say things that are factually untrue and have you not rebut it. That's what they mean. Um, so, but okay, if you have a principal belief in free speech, great. Me too. I support the executive order. Um, but now I want Antifa speaking places, Black Panthers, communists, democratic socialists. Go ahead. Come on. Go do it. See, this has always been one of my critiques of um, the left is – I don't think a lot of these people know that the answer is not to say, oh, my God, you have some offensive speakers. Let's ban them. The answer is we're actually going to outflank you on the issue of free speech. So, oh, you think you believe in free speech? We believe in it more than you do. How about that? How about now we're going to have fucking uh, Antifa speak at a school, and now you're immediately going to flip on your so-called principal belief in free speech, and you're going to say, we can't allow them for reasons X, Y, and Z. Oh, my God, we think they're a terrorist group. Oh, my God, we think that they're going to do violence. Oh, my God, they're going to say things that are crazy. Oh, my God, we can't allow this. Who would invite them? You're so terrible. This is so horrendous. So, okay, do you really believe in free speech, or do you not? And you're going to expose yourself as not believing in it, so you could www.shutthefuckupsville.com. Now, the other point is, Donald Trump, you want to talk about an opponent of free speech? This guy's pretending he believes in free speech. He basically, single-handedly, got Colin Kaepernick blacklisted from the NFL because this dude kneeled during the national anthem to bring attention to police brutality. That is like the definition of you not believing in free speech. The main argument, whenever there's like a riot over some police brutality thing that happened, police kill some unarmed black guy, there's like a riot in response to that. What does the right say? Oh, my God, how could you do this? Obviously, the way you fight back is you should do peaceful, nonviolent resistance, and then we wouldn't oppose you. Okay, Colin Kaepernick steps up and goes, I'm here to do some peaceful, nonviolent resistance. I'm going to kneel during the national anthem to bring attention to police brutality and try to bring about some change. And they're like, ah, how dare you? Blacklisted from the NFL immediately change their, their philosophy, immediately change their stance on it. It's almost like they just want you to shut the fuck up and not complain about anything. So he's against, he literally single-handedly got uh, Colin Kaepernick black, blacklisted. Then there was like collusion from the NFL owners where they all agreed, okay, we're going to keep him out so we act this problem and nip it in the bud. 
and then he sued them, and I think he was successful, and I think he got some sort of a payment deal out of it because it was proven that they actually colluded against him, which is fucking crazy and shouldn't be allowed. So Trump, against the free speech of kneel, peacefully kneeling to protest something, by the way, at every college, every college football team should start kneeling for the national anthem and watch how quickly he flips on this idea. We believe in free speech on college campuses. Oh, my God, did you guys kneel to protest? something that I'm in support of. Uh, God, I, and did I say I support free speech? No, I don't. Um, Trump, not that long ago, was tweeting about how we should ban flag burning. That is, like, literally against a First Amendment case where even Judge Antonin Scalia, Justice Antonin Scalia, said, as much as I don't like flag burning, that's part and parcel of what free speech is. That's a nonviolent, peaceful way of opposing something and protesting something and saying America did something wrong, so they, ban the, uh, they burn the flag. So... Trump says we need to ban flag burning. That's him saying, I don't agree with the First Amendment. I don't agree with it at all. There's also, you know, articles and, and comments he made going back to when he was on the campaign trail where he says, oh, the U.S. should have a system on speech a lot more like the U.K. where, you know, people can, are more likely to successfully sue for libel and they have more hate speech protections there and stuff like that. They control speech much, much more strictly there, which is authoritarian. And he's like, yeah, I like that system better. You want to know why? Because he wants to sue the media when the media says shit about him that he doesn't like. So he doesn't believe in free speech there. He literally threatened to sue The Onion over a satire article involving him because he didn't like it. He doesn't believe in free speech there. He literally sued Bill Maher over a joke involving him, so he doesn't like free speech there. So this guy's the biggest fraud in the world, and he's surfing a wave of a popular issue when he has been probably the number one opponent to that actual policy position. And I'm fucking sick and tired of these assholes these right-leaning commentators who don't keep it real with you on this front, who act like, oh, no, Trump is actually an ally on the issue of free speech. No, he's not. So the only thing I could take away from that is either you're massively ignorant to his history on it, or perhaps you're a fraud, too, and you don't give a fuck about free speech either. I don't, there's no other possible uh, you know, options there. It's one or the other. Either you're massively ignorant on his history of it, which is pretty much unforgivable if your job is to talk about politics, or you don't really believe in it either, and you're just using it as a wedge issue and only invoking it when it's to help your side. So, it's so clear he's a fraud on this shit, man, and everybody needs to recognize it. Okay, next. All right, John Bolton and, and Tap Jaker. So John Bolton, the you know chief neocon running our foreign policy, he was shockingly asked a decent question on CNN by Tap Jaker on the issue of Venezuela, and um, his answer is, I don't even have a word for it. You watch and find out for yourself. Let's turn to South America. You tweeted on Friday about Venezuela's Nicolas Maduro, quote, those who continue to support a dictator that violates human rights and steals from the starving should not be allowed to walk around with impunity, unquote. This is a matter of course, and this didn't start with the Trump administration. The United States supports any number of dictators who violate human rights, including the leaders of Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, 
should those who support those dictators not be allowed to walk around with impunity? You know, I've, I've put out roughly 150 tweets on Venezuela. This is a new experiment in public diplomacy. Uh, the fact is that we are trying to rally support uh, for the peaceful transition of power from Maduro to Juan Guaido, whom we recognize as president. Uh, and I think uh, since most of my tweets also come out in Spanish because we want to reach the Latin American audience in particular, that a lot of people, especially on the political left, in the hemisphere and around the world, now understand that the failed experiment of Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro needs to end. So I'd like to see as broad a coalition as we can put together to replace Maduro, to replace the whole corrupt regime. That's what we're trying to do. Well, certainly Maduro is nobody that I would defend in any way. But well, that's good to hear. But do you, do you not see that uh, the United States' support for other brutal dictators around the world undermines the the credibility of the argument you're making? No, I don't think it does. I think it's separate. And I think, look, in this administration, uh, we're not afraid to use the phrase Monroe Doctrine. This, this is a country in our hemisphere. It's been the objective of American presidents going back to Ronald Reagan to have a completely democratic hemisphere. I uh, mentioned back in uh, at the end of last year that uh, we're looking very much at the troika of tyranny, including Cuba and Nicaragua, as well as Maduro. Part of the problem in Venezuela is the heavy Cuban presence, 20 to 25,000 Cuban security officials by reports that have been in the public. This is the sort of thing that, uh, that we find unacceptable, and that's why we're pursuing these policies. Okay, that was incredible. There was not a split second of digesting the point and reflecting on it and then responding to it. Not a second of reflection, not a second of introspection. It was just like, okay, you say we have to go after Maduro because he's a dictator. And he says, the U- Tap Jaker says, the U.S. supports a tremendous number of dictators. So do you not understand how you've just undermined your own argument and almost exposed that that's not your real point? And his response is, first he dodges the question. Then when Tap Jaker reiterates it, he goes, no, it's separate. What do you mean? And then his explanation has nothing to do with the point. No, it's separate. Okay, go on to explain. He doesn't say it. He doesn't explain it. That's incredible. It's like in order to support his philosophy of neoconservatism, um, interventionism, and imperialism, he uses (laughs) anti-logic. There's nothing there. And... In fact, the part that got under my skin the most is probably when he says, we need to create a democratic hemisphere. But wait, 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 wait. You just said how it doesn't undermine the argument of toppling dictators when we support so many dictators. And then you go on to say, which is why we need to create a democratic hemisphere. That makes no sense. That's a contradiction. You're saying, no, it's cool that we support dictators, which is why we, you know, we need to support a democratic hemisphere. You just said you support dictators. So you're, by definition, not supporting a democratic hemisphere. You're saying, I support dictators. So notice what they do. They just use these flowery words to mean whatever they want it to mean. So in John Bolton's mind, democratic just means U.S. uh, allied. So Saudi Arabia, democratic. Israel, democratic. Um, The most brutal authoritarian, authoritarian regime you could possibly think of, democratic. As long as you're an ally of us, democratic. Democratic enough. So he sees no contradiction there. He sees it as, like, what do you mean? I I think we should have a democratic hemisphere, which is why I support dictators in our hemisphere. Dude, that's insanity. 
it's just rank imperialism. That's what it is. And the other point of that is, oh, we need to create a democratic hemisphere. Well, again, you're saying by supporting dictators that we support in our hemisphere. And also, how the fuck do you just still assert that you casually have the right to control other sovereign countries? They're sovereign countries. In other words, it violates international law for you to fucking try to control who their leaders are. On principle alone, you shouldn't be controlling other countries, other sovereign countries, who their leader is. I mean, this is... And by the way, he just left you a hint that Cuba and Nicaragua are next. He said it. And he tweeted about Nicaragua the other day, and I was like, "Uh uh-oh, here we go again. Uh Uh-oh, SpaghettiOs. Whatever regime even slightly questions U.S. interests in Western capital, tick-tock, bitch, they're coming for you. And they're going to try to topple you and put in a U.S., a Western capital-friendly leader. That's what it is. So Nicaragua, Cuba, they're all, they're going old school, Cold War style. We're, we're going to try to topple everybody who's not uh, aligned with us. And it is disgusting. It is gross. It's criminal. And uh, John Bolton, by the way, should be in prison, should be in the Hague. I mean, this is a guy who is responsible, at least in part, for the war on terror and the illegal offensive invasion of Iraq, a country that didn't attack us, um, and the destruction of that country, the minimum 200,000 civilians that are dead as a result of it, and the $7 trillion wasted there by 2053. So the fact that he's even considered a a reasonable voice and somebody who you should interview and hear out, I mean, I know he's in the administration, but the fact that he's even in the administration, this is all, all evidence, direct evidence of how corrupt and broken our system is and how the law doesn't apply to rich, powerful people. Okay. All right, let me do the Tulsi Gabbard story. Then I got to take another break and treat the throat real quick. All right, Tulsi, talk to me. She went on Tucker's show. Here we go. So Tulsi Gabbard went on Tucker Carlson's show, and um, I felt compelled to cover this segment for multiple reasons. Let's take a look and then... When we come back, I'll explain why this is um, it's an instructive segment, and it shows a lot about what can and should happen moving forward. Take a look. Suddenly there are a lot of Democrats running for their party's presidential nomination. There are some disagreements between them, but one thing many of them appear to agree on is wholeheartedly embracing the foreign policy agenda of Bill Kristol. Whether it's Syria or Venezuela or Russia, there's an opportunity for the United States to sponsor violent conflict somewhere in the world. They support it. The only exception to this is Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii. She's a sincere progressive. She's a veteran. She says she wants to keep America out of pointless foreign wars. And for that, she has been repeatedly attacked in Washington. Congresswoman Gabbard joins us tonight. Congressman, thanks very much for coming on. I know that you have been criticized for straying out of approved media outlets. I'm truly criticized for coming on the show tonight. I just want to reassure Democratic voters that we disagree on many, many, probably most things. <laughs> you are a sincere progressive. But one place that I admire your courage is your unwillingness to go along with the foreign policy views of everyone else in Washington. And you really have been attacked for it. Why do you think that is? Uh, Oleg Tucker, I am a soldier in the Army National Guard. I've served now for nearly 15 years, served on two Middle East deployments, uh, and I know 
personally, firsthand the cost of war. Uh, in Congress now for over the last six years, I've served on the Foreign Affairs Committee as well as the Armed Services Committee, and I have seen how uh, self-serving, powerful politicians from both parties uh, have continued this uh, foreign policy regime change uh, war view uh, where they think that we, the United States, should be acting as the policemen of the world and that we should continue to go around and overthrowing and toppling dictators or, or countries who we don't like, uh, costing us, the American people, trillions of dollars in the process, uh, causing more suffering in the countries where we go and wage these wars, and oh, by the way, undermining our own national security as we are seeing playing out before our eyes in countries like North Korea, yes. where Kim Jong-un uh, has clearly stated that he is holding on to these nuclear weapons as his only deterrent against the United States coming in and waging a regime change war in North Korea. So while you know, I'm deeply concerned about the fact that this summit yesterday uh, ended without a, a, an agreement because we, we need to see denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, it's not surprising because of this uh, policy, this regime change war policy that, again, leaders in both parties in the foreign policy establishment here in Washington have perpetuated over and over and over again. What's so interesting is that that worldview, the regime change worldview, I mean, if it worked, I, at one time I thought it sounded like it made sense, but we've had almost 20 years of it, and it demonstrably hasn't worked, and there's really kind of no debate about how badly it's gone. Why would people still support that? That's a great question. You know, it's if you look at the, the military-industrial complex that benefits off of uh, these continued regime change wars. Uh, you look at those in Washington who's uh, invested their entire careers built on continuing to wage these wars. And the most unfortunate thing is they sell them under the guise of humanitarianism to the American people who want to be able to do good things, who want to be able to help people who are suffering, but not pointing out the fact and not facing the truth that in each of these different examples of regime change led by the United States, it has resulted in far more suffering for the people who they're supposedly trying to help. Now, there's a lot of different motives for this. You can look at corporate greed. You can look at who actually benefits financially yes. uh, from these wars if you want to see why they're continuing and why it perpetuates, again, by self-serving, powerful politicians and leaders uh, in both parties. Has anyone, no, you've been attacked quite a bit, I'm not going to make you relive it, including by some people I know who should know better, to be honest with you. But nobody has engaged you in the argument you just made. And so they've dismissed you as sucking up to this dictator, you're a bad person, is basically what they're saying. Has anybody actually debated you on the points that you're making? No. No. Constantly I see, uh, again, people from both parties instead. Uh, resorting to name-calling or superficial attacks because uh, they refuse to engage on the substance of this argument about why they continue to uh, push for and try to wage these regime change wars, ignoring the disastrous consequences on the people in those countries and the American people. The reality is these, these wars are costing us, the taxpayers, trillions of dollars, dollars that should be here that should remain in our pockets or invested in things like uh, rebuilding our crumbling infrastructure, invested in the needs of our people. I just want to say again, just to be totally clear, 
we disagree on many things, but I admire your bravery for saying that out loud, and you are always welcome on the show. I appreciate your coming. Thanks, Thank Dr. you very much. Appreciate it. Okay, that was fascinating. Now, I, I read the comments on this video on YouTube, and it was really amazing how many uh, comments I saw of, you know, oh, I'm a Republican, but I would vote for Tulsi Gabbard. Oh, I'm a conservative, but she makes a lot of sense. There was a lot of that going on in the comment section. And, of course, there were, you know, instances of people just saying, oh, I just support Tulsi Gabbard, not telling you what their affiliation is, and maybe they might already be Democrats or, or, or left-leaning or whatever. But, you know, I criticized um, Rutger Bregman, who was on Tucker's show recently, and it seemed to me like Rutger was trying to get kicked off the show. That's the vibe I got from it. Um, he was invited on to talk about uh, taxes, and how at Davos, the elite gathering, that a lot of those people are just dodging their taxes, and, and Rutger went there and kind of called them out on that and uh, spoke about how it makes sense to have higher marginal tax rates and yada, yada, yada. And, you know, Tucker invited him on to talk about that, and I guess Tucker was trying to frame the conversation more from a, oh, my God, look at these liberal hypocrites uh, perspective, and Rutger wasn't having it. But in response to that, Rutger kind of, it seemed to me like he was trying to get kicked off the show and he was like kind of going after Tucker as well and saying you're a Coke-funded stooge type thing. And, you know, my criticism of Rutger was you actually had an opportunity there to spread left-wing ideas to a right-wing audience and convince people in a right-wing audience that left-wing ideas make sense. And instead of doing that, when you go after Tucker personally, now all the people who are fans of Tucker and who are watching his show, they're going to shut down and they're not interested in any, anything you're saying further and they're not – there might be turned off to further left-wing ideas that could have been explained to them in a rational way where they would support it. So, you know, I'm more of a fan of what Tulsi just did there. Now, notice, she went on Tucker Carlson's show, and they spoke about an issue where Tulsi didn't compromise her morality at all, and Tulsi didn't comp compromise her policy beliefs at all. She stuck to her guns in terms of saying, this is what I believe, this is what I'm fighting for, and I'm going to lay it out for you. And so for anybody on the Democratic side to attack her over this, for going on Tucker's show, I honestly think that's like insanely idiotic tribalism. Because it's not like she went on Tucker's show and said, let's talk about how much immigrants suck. She didn't do that. She went on Tucker's show and said, let's talk about regime change war and how I'm against it and Tucker sometimes is against it, at least his rhetoric now is against it, even though he admits back in the day he supported it, and he supports Donald Trump today, and Donald Trump is still bombing eight different countries, so there's a question as to how committed he is to that as a policy idea, as opposed to just using it as empty rhetoric. It seems more like he uses it like empty rhetoric. But the fact is, she was given a platform to reach out to people and tell them, hey, here's my belief, here's why I think this is right, and here's why it needs to change, and she did it. And there wasn't a single compromise of her own values, and it was even reiterated multiple times, we probably disagree on the overwhelming majority of things, but here's one area we agree on, and so we're going to talk about it. Now, if Tucker were to randomly bring up, say, immigration in that segment, and Tulsi went right along with what Tucker was saying, I would say, come on, Tulsi, you fucked up. Don't do that. Don't go, don't go on his show and then agree with him on his scapegoating of immigrants. But Tulsi didn't do that. Tulsi went on and stuck on foreign policy and was totally correct. And as a result of that, I think you do change hearts and minds, and you do reach people who are across the aisle, you get them to like you, and you get them to be interested in your policy views. And 
you know, I'm from the school of thought that changing minds is not a bad thing. It's a wonderful thing. And I know that there are some Democratic partisan hacks who think, no, how dare you go on uh, an outlet like that? But I don't agree with them, and I think they're kind of silly. And the final point is this. I also liked how she led with, um, I'm a soldier, because what that is is, and Tulsi knows framing, and what that is there is you start the conversation by framing, framing it from the perspective of the people you're talking to. So it's like me when I did... Uh, when I was on Politicon panels and I was with conservatives, I said, okay, listen, you want to, there's one panel specifically on how are we going to get along? Well, I said, okay, here's some areas. You guys say you're conservatives and you like small government. Here's some areas where I like small government. I want to stop the NSA spying. I want to legalize marijuana and release all nonviolent drug offenders. I want to end the wars and therefore shrink government massively by cutting back on the military budget. So when you frame it from their perspective, then they're a lot more likely to go, I agree with you. And if they don't say they agree with you and they disagree with you, then they're exposing themselves as hacks who have no principles. So it's a win-win. And Tulsi kind of used the right-wing love of soldiers against them. Like, oh, you were in the military? Damn, I really have to, if I criticize you, I better come correct now. So she led with that and that framed the conversation as like, okay, I better listen to her because she's throwing us like a, a bone here in terms of here's your ideology, boom. Uh, now, now you can listen to the rest of what I have to say, and you're open to it. And at the end, you'll even notice, it wasn't even just about war. Because at the end, she said, listen, we're wasting all this money, and we could immediately take this money and put it towards something like rebuilding infrastructure. Why wouldn't we do that? We need to take care of our own country. Another left-wing idea, and even got Tucker to go yes to that. Now, again, Tucker's a little bit of a fraud because he supports Donald Trump, and Donald Trump's idea of an infrastructure uh, deal was giving Goldman Sachs whatever they want and privatizing stuff, which is terrible. But the fact that left-wing rhetoric is getting through to a right-wing audience is a massively good thing, and everybody should recognize it. All right, let me take what will hopefully be my final break. When we come back, we got Glenn Beck, we got another Ilhan Omar story, um, and then Laura Ingram as well. And um, incredible, incredibly sad story about expensive pharma drugs leading to death. So stay right there. We'll be right back with all that and more.
Alright, y'all, we back. Throat is... Throat is officially fixed. <laughs> At least for the remainder of the show. Mm, got that little tingly feeling in the back of the throat. Which is a good sign. Numb me up, bitch. Numb me up. Alright. Glenn Beck time. A little bit of throwback feel. Nothing like a good old secular talk Glenn Beck clip. <clears throat> so this is going to feel a little bit like a throwback to 2013 or so. We got a clip here of Glenn Beck. He still thinks he's relevant, and he was uh, invited to CPAC, which is the gathering of you know, far-right people. And um, he gave a speech, and we can sum it up by saying the following, inequality is awesome. That's his philosophy, but, uh, you know, I don't need to explain it. He'll explain it in his own words, and then we'll discuss. A lot of people think that democratic socialism is just a new coat of paint on the old FDR democratic policies, but let me give you a quote from a Vox column. The title, Democratic Socialism Explained by a democratic socialist. The author writes, quote, there's truth in the long run. Democratic socialists want to end capitalism. Ma'am, we've traced the call. It's coming from inside the House and the Senate. From the column, quote, many observers see groups like DSA pushing for policies like Medicare for all and decide that we must actually be something like New Deal liberals who are simply confused about the meaning of socialism. But that's not true. Medicare for all is an instructive example. Medicare for all is not socialism. That would just only nationalize the insurance, not the whole health care system. But democratic socialists, still quoting, ultimately want something more like the British National Health Service. So why aren't they going for that? Well, we could ask ourselves, why weren't they going for Medicare for all when we were talking about Obamacare? Again, quoting, because we currently don't have the support to push for and win such an ambitious program. Social democratic reforms like Medicare for all in the eyes of DSA, part of the long, uneven process of building that support and eventually overthrowing capitalism, end quote. This is the philosophy of the candidates the Democrats are now saying are the future of the party and the future of America. Today we must dismiss two fallacies. The first one is that capitalism doesn't work. The second is that socialism doesn't work. Let me be the first to tell you that socialism does indeed work. In fact, it works perfectly as designed every single time. We have been having this debate for 170 years now. We look at socialism and say, look, it doesn't work. Look at all the poor and the starving people. Look at all of the piles of dead bodies. And they say, capitalism doesn't work. Look at all the fat, rich people. Look at all of the inequality. Well, yes, we have to look at the goals of both. The goal of socialism is equality for all, the equality of outcome. 
So the goal of socialism is that, then the goal of capitalism being the opposite must be the opposite. Inequality of outcome. Yes, the precise and natural result of the free market. Capitalism is the inequality of outcomes. Or to put it another way, capitalism acknowledges and encourages merit. You cannot have merit without inequality. If you want to get rid of inequality, you must first get rid of merit. But capitalism safeguards the promise and hope of inequality. This is why we all studied in school, why we worked so hard to get an A. Because we knew if we had an A, even if others had a D or an F, what it meant for us was the promise of bettering our own lives and our own prospects. It's why we worked hard. It's why many of us get up every morning, why we strive to create or invent, not just to better our world, but to better ourselves and our station. That is the promise and the hope of inequality. So that's great. Um, I like how... I like how um, his description here of the respective economic and political systems um, are laid out in a way where he's saying inequality is wonderful. So let's, let's break this down further. Let's talk about how he's sloppy with his terms and his definitions and his understanding of the way these respective systems work. So he, at the beginning, he talks about how, well, no, democratic uh, socialists do want to end capitalism. That's his point using a Vox article to buttress his point. But here's the thing. Yeah, Vox had an article where a democratic socialist spoke about how that him or her, that particular democratic socialist, was like, I would like to get past capitalism, overthrow capitalism, whatever. But the democratic socialists, or, or, or really social democrats, who are elected in Congress, and you know Bernie Sanders in the Senate, they're crystal clear that that's actually not their goal. They're crystal clear that what they want is a Scandinavian-type system, which harnesses both capitalism and socialism, takes the best aspects of both, has a mixed market economy, and basically just tries to foster equal opportunity. So basically he's trying to frame the argument in a way that's most convenient to his ideology. And what he's trying to say is, yeah, but these democratic socialists actually are all post-capitalist, which is why they're such a problem and why we need to fight back against it. But that's totally misleading and not true because all the so-called democratic socialists who are elected have explained repeatedly that when they use the term democratic socialist, what they really mean is social democracy. And he even mentions New Deal liberals as, in, as a counterpoint to these democratic socialists. But actually, no. New Deal liberalism is actually the heart of the so-called democratic socialism of Bernie Sanders um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, so on and so forth. So it's misleading. At, at best, it's a half-truth. Are there some democratic socialists who uh, want to be post-capitalist? Sure, there's some, but all the elected ones don't. And I would argue probably the bulk of the movement is more of a social democratic movement because it's all based on the principles of Medicare for All, free college, living wage, and the wars, and things of that nature, which that policy platform, when you go through it, it's all social democratic. I, I haven't seen almost anybody who says, no, my whole point is being post-capitalist, and here's my detailed plan as how we get to that point. Ne- never heard it. And I run in left circles, never heard it. Um, I'm sure some people have that point, but 
no tangible plan has been explained. Uh, the furthest I've heard anybody go is the idea of worker-owned co-ops being the norm. And that doesn't even scare me that much. <laughs> I mean, I like the idea of allowing for worker-owned co-ops, but not necessarily banning the old-school traditional hierarchy of a business. Um, so perhaps I'm a little further right-wing than the people who would say, I want worker-owned co-ops to be the norm. But even those people, that's not this scary type of post-capitalism, uncharted world that he wants us to be afraid of. That actually seems like a totally normal, reasonable system that would function relatively fine. Um, so then uh, he goes on to talk about how, well, why don't they say they're for a UK-style system? Again, because there's actually mixed feelings on the left on this issue. Some people... I've always said I'll take any kind of single-payer system that we can get. So if that means a French-style system where we have uh, public funding going to private institutions, so you have the single insurer, but the providers are private, totally fine with that. I'll take it in a heartbeat. Or if we have the UK-style system where it's uh, public funding going to public institutions, I'll take that too. Either one's fine. So when he makes it seem like, oh, they don't have the support for – um, the UK style system, that's not true. When you talk about Medicare for all, um, it pulls at 70%. And obviously the wording will change the amount of support generally, but I'm pretty sure if you phrase it as, you know, do you want a single payer system? Um, do you want a, do you want na a nationalized healthcare system as a right? People will say yeah to that. So it's not even true that, oh, people would be so scared of the UK system. In a lot of these studies, on the best healthcare systems in the world, the UK comes out number one. So there's an argument that maybe even that UK system, public funding of public institutions, is even better than the French system, which is public funding of private institutions. But there's other studies where France comes out number one. So I don't know. I don't care. I think the main component is the funding has to be public funding. Um, but I like how he's trying to fearmonger over something that's wildly popular, and he's pretending like it's not popular. Um, then we get to the meat of the argument. Uh, capitalism works because capitalism leads to inequality, and inequality is awesome. Okay, but Glenn, the point is, what level of inequality is okay and acceptable and makes sense? Now, I would argue, does some inequality make sense? Absolutely. There, there should be a certain level of inequality because it actually is true that some people work much, much harder than other people. Um, it is true that there's a lot more responsibility being, you know, the CEO of a giant company versus, I don't know, um, somebody who gets coffee and, and, and straightens up a little bit. Like, there, there is a difference there. And I think even the most committed leftist will tell you, yeah, I'm not saying that they should both make a million dollars a year here um, or 200 grand a year, whatever the fucking number may be, 80 grand a year, whatever. So, again, what, what these guys love to do is set up a straw man of the opponent and then knock down that straw man. But in this case, he's just being sloppy with his terms. So he's saying capitalism works because... It leads to inequality, and inequality is awesome. Well, the degree of inequality we have, Glenn, is not even close to awesome. In fact, it's comically dumb. And I would argue you can make a moral argument about why it's, it's terrible, but I think you can actually just make a, a logical argument as to why it makes absolutely no sense, even divorcing it from morality completely. So in other words, the Walton family, um, six people have more wealth than the bottom 45% of the country combined. Now, the Walton family, for those of you who don't know, the person who created Walmart is no longer alive. So the Walton family is just a bunch of moocher babies who were part of the Good Sperm Club, and they got lucky. Okay, so 
uh, Glenn Beck's argument is, oh, capitalism works because it leads to inequality, and inequality is awesome. But hold on. That level of inequality is preposterous, and also they didn't work for it. So you're undermining your other point about merit. And again, this gets to the core of the argument. The thing that's great about capitalism is that it, it incentivizes merit. And so the harder you work, the further you go. That's his point. That is unequivocally not true. 60% of wealth in this country is intergenerational and passed down. So 60% of these uh, people who are at the top, you know, who are, are fantastically wealthy, it's inherited money. It's, it's generational wealth. So that is the polar opposite of this idea of merit, like, oh, everybody who's rich work for it. Not even close to true. And then the flip side of that is also the case. So I've seen, I know people who are the hardest working people I've ever met. Some, some of them work three jobs, still living probably at the poverty line, right about at the poverty line, or barely paying their bills, definitely living paycheck to paycheck. 76% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Now, Glenn, if you're being consistent in your point here, what you would say is, well, listen, that's 76% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck. Tough cookies work harder. You're not working hard enough. And my response to you is, you're a fucking idiot if you really think that's true. Most of those people are the hardest working people in the country. And their work is just not valued properly. And that's why you need rules, and that's why you need regulations, and that's why it makes sense to have a system that's crafted in a way that's fair to working people. Um, so, and then, of course, he, he says the goal of socialism is equality of outcome. Again, I run in left circles. Maybe there's some people who say that, but I haven't encountered them. Most of the people, at least who agree with my school of thought, which is social democracy, um, the argument is, no, we actually are the real proponents of equality of opportunity. So what that means is you're not really given a fair shot in this world if you don't have you know, a roof over your head, you don't have um, health care, you don't have the ability for higher education, which then studies show, of course, that leads to more opportunities in your life, and you can make more money as well if you go down that path. So that's why we fight for things like a living wage. That's why we fight for things like um, union access so that people's work can be valued properly, where if you're a working-class person, you can have a decent middle-class life. Um, the policies that we fight for, Medicare for all, free college, living wage, things of that nature, the whole point of those policies is to make it so that you give people a, a fair shot and equal opportunity, not equal outcome. Again, equal outcome would mean everybody makes the same, no matter how hard you work. I haven't met anybody who argues for that, anybody. But see, that's how he tries to portray the left. He tries to portray the left as thinking that. Uh, everybody should make the same no matter how hard they work. And my goal is equality of outcome, bro. Except you just made that up, and you're creating a straw lefty to knock it down. Now, again, maybe there's a handful of people who believe that, and they, they even have a decent case they can make for it. I haven't heard those people. I haven't seen those people. So I'm not going to go on the acting assumption that Glenn Beck knows the left better than I do when I'm part of the left, and I know what everybody in my circle says. And, you know, my whole point is we want to get to the point where we actually have uh, equal opportunity. And right now we don't have that. And when you have $1.5 trillion in student loan debt, 
that's unsustainable and unfair, and people start buying the eight ball. When you have a minimum wage that's not a living wage, that's not fair. That's not giving people equal opportunity. If they work hard, they should make enough money to survive. Um, when you have half of workers in this country making 30000 or less, that's not an equal, that's not equal opportunity for these people. Um, so I would argue we're actually trying to create more of a meritocracy. And, you know, he's deluded when he thinks like, oh, capitalism is great because it has inequality and inequality is awesome. It's the degree, it's the level of inequality. And then also in our system, which is corporatism, people fail up all the time. Trump failed up his entire life. Um, you know, Wall Street crashed the fucking economy, made horrendous decisions, hosed their clients like Goldman Sachs did, committing fraud, totally got away with it. Multi-trillion dollar bank bailouts to the people who crashed the economy for greed. And, you know, they got bonuses with tax money. So that's not like the idea that this system, like, oh, that's great because it rewards the right people. Are you kidding me? What a joke. What a joke that is. It's a broken system. It's a corrupt system. And the fact that you don't acknowledge that means you're a status quo defender, which means you're deeply, deeply unintellectual. All right, let's let's do one more with Ilhan Omar. Made the show a bunch today. So Ilhan Omar decided to buck the Democratic Party leadership again. Take a look. In an interview with The Intercept, Representative Ilhan Omar said she does not recognize Juan Guaido as Venezuela's interim president, defying leaders in her party. Guaido has been recognized by the United States and other countries as president in opposition to Nicolas Maduro's regime. So what do you want to see happen in Venezuela? Do you have a solution, a, a preferred option of what should, what should happen? The Intercept's Mehdi Hassan asked. Well, the Constitution of Venezuela says that there needs to be an elected uh, election called within 30 days, and we're waiting for that to happen. What we should be involved in is having diplomatic conversations and bringing people to the table and being a partner in facilitating that. Omar said, adding, we are threatening, we are threatening intervention and sending humanitarian aid that is in the guise of, you know, eventually invading this country, and the people of the country don't want us there. When asked if she recognizes the opposition uh, as the leader, Omar, who sits on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, said, quote, absolutely not. That's the right answer. Yeah, that's the right answer. Still amazing to me how many people on, uh, on the left are not getting this. Um, the problem in this conversation is the premise. So, again, people always jump right to uh, Maduro. Maduro's bad. Let's talk about Maduro for an hour and a half. No, no, no. Rewind. Go right back to the premise and your first principles. Should the United States have the right to willy-nilly, flippantly, nonchalantly declare who's going to be the leader of any nation on the planet? No. If you actually believe in international law, conversation over. That's it. That's the beginning. That's the end. You know, Donald Trump casually fucking uh, tweeted while he was taking a shit that we now recognize this guy as the leader of Venezuela. whoop de freaking do Take that tweet and shove it up your ass. I don't care. That's not, that's not the way the world works. That's not the way it should work. If you actually believe in international law, if you actually believe in human rights, you go, okay, so then I guess um, can the Grand Ayatollah of Iran randomly decide on Twitter 
I no longer recognize Trump as president of the U.S. Nancy Pelosi is now president. What would we say if he did that? What would we say? Would we be like, good point. Let's move forward. And he, he has arguments. Hey, man, listen, this guy didn't even win the most votes. You're telling me the person who got fewer votes ended up winning the election? The fuck is that? Makes no sense. Nancy Pelosi's not a leader. What? We'd be like, piss off. This has nothing to do with you. Who are you? So the same thing's happening. It's just the U.S. doing it in Venezuela. And now, since we're just, people have, in this country have just casually bought into the logic of empire. And like the logic of, well, what do you mean? We're the U.S. We, that doesn't apply to us. But it should. And the way it works on paper is it does apply to us. Now, we ignore it all the fucking time. But we shouldn't. And that doesn't mean it's any less illegal. It just means we have the largest military in the world. And honestly, it's just like that Chappelle show skit, the Black Bush skit, where he's like, oh, does the U.N. disagree with me? Well, do me a favor. Sanction me with your army. Oh, that's right, bitch. You don't have an army. We do. Step aside. That's basically the real world response from the U.S. Whenever we bully other countries and they don't agree with us, it's like, really? You're going to take us on? We're just more powerful than you. So, okay, then let's just be honest and say the world that a lot of these people want to live in is might makes right. And we have the most uh, weaponry. We have the most powerful military. So, therefore, everybody shut the fuck up. This whole thing about human rights and, and justice and international law is just a facade. And it's a facade for American exceptionalism. And we get to do whatever the fuck we want. You get to take it. All right, but if you believe in that, then you believe in that. And that's the whole premise that you're buying into when you say we're e- we even are in the conversation of deciding who the fuck the leader of Venezuela is going to be. You kidding me? The argument now is the same people who still haven't fixed the fucking water in Flint, Michigan, so they don't care about Americans. These, these same people deeply care about Venezuelans and should have the right to determine what the government of Venezuela is going to be? Are you kidding me? I mean, it's, it's laughably dumb. So I don't... Now, notice, I haven't mentioned Maduro in this conversation because it's not relevant. It's not relevant to the conversation. It's not relevant. Point is the premise. We are not in the position to just determine, yeah, yeah we think this person is the leader. The fuck is that? Now, that also cuts both ways. If something were to happen you know, in, in Venezuela, and there would be some uh, serious unrest and some weird shit goes on, and then there's like a coup, and fucking Juan Guaido just declares, you know, he's the leader. Am I going to say we need to go in there and fucking militarily topple Juan Guaido and put back in Maduro? No, I just told you, it works both ways. In any situation, we have no business in that country. We shouldn't be in that country, especially with our fucking record of what we've done, in particularly that region of the world. Uh, again, the same people, uh, Elliot Abrams, who's now in charge of this, who sent fake aid in the 80s to try to topple governments by sending weapons. Now we're all supposed to believe, like, oh, no, he's, he actually cares about peace and he's just sending aid. What do you mean? No, it's a PR stunt. It's the international community that says it's a PR stunt. It's not me. It's the fucking Red Cross. So uh, uh, are they the ones who are lying? No. They're, they've said all along, Maduro and Venezuela, they are letting in aid. It's just when it's the U.S. and it's in bad faith and it's, a ploy for regime change, that's when they say no, but it's for all the international aid they're letting in. So, listen, this is the correct answer. The correct answer is no, absolutely not. Do we just randomly recognize a different leader of a foreign country? No. Let them take care of their own fucking business, okay? That's the right answer. That's the right answer without question. Now, watch how many fucking idiots in the Democratic Party will go after for this. 
100% there's going to be people, oh, my God, how can you say that? Why would you say that? You're, you're disagreeing with leadership. You know, uh, you can't uh, speak out against leadership like that. How could you? Oh, my God, why are you defending Maduro? Why are you backing an evil dictator? Why are you in favor of the suffering of the Venezuelan people? There will be a litany of shitty arguments and straw man arguments and fucking nonsense just vomited onto her after she made the most normal, casual, correct point in human history. So if you can't tell, I'm a little sick of this. Why are we even talking about Venezuela? Why are we even talking about Venezuela? What is it? What the fuck does that have to do with us? It's like, if tomorrow, all of a sudden, they started itching for regime change in fucking Myanmar, I mean, they have the evidence to say, they're fucking doing a genocide of Rohingya Muslims. Like, they're a vicious, brutal government. If they started ramping up the propaganda, like, oh, we gotta go top of the government, blah, 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 all these fucking idiots would just go right, oh, it's like they manufacturing consent. As soon as the, the corporate media says anything, they go, oh, <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, oh, Myanmar, bad. Let's fucking talk about that for eight hours and about how us, the saviors of the world, have to go save them. We're not that. 73% of the world's dictatorships we back. We're best friends with Saudi freaking Arabia, one of the worst governments in the world who spread Wahhabism all across this fucking globe. And you still buy into the premise that maybe, well, maybe we're helping people with, for good reason. How dumb are you? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Elhan Omar, you're right. Don't backpedal even a little bit. The bowels of hell are about to be opened up on you from other Democrats and Democratic leadership and idiot talking heads in the media. Ignore them. They're wrong. You're right. Um, That has nothing to do with us. And when we have the conversation, it does have something to do with us. You're immediately buying into the logic of empire and that we're above international law and we get to determine stuff for other countries. We don't. All right, John Bolton. So I have some new details on how John Bolton may have torpedoed peace with North Korea. There was, uh, you know, the summit recently, Trump and Kim Jong-un met again, um, and behind the scenes, some fuckery was afoot. So Newsweek says, Donald Trump's North Korea deal fell apart because of John Bomham Bolton, experts say. So look at this portion of the article. It's the most important. How exactly Bolton may have steered the dialogue from its course was as of yet unclear. This is from a few days ago, by the way. There were a number of working theories. One was presented Thursday by former South Korean Unification Minister Zhang Tae-yoon during a call with the local CBS radio station. He said he was almost 100% optimistic about the talks up until this morning's press conference and attributed the failure to a last-minute stipulation proposed by Bolton that would mandate North Korea not only report on its nuclear weapons, but its chemical and biological stockpiles too. North Korea then reportedly raised the stakes to include sanctions relief, a deal-breaker for Trump. The president would go on to say that the North Koreans wanted sanctions lifted in their entirety but in an extremely rare press conference organized by, uh, at midnight, Hanoi time, uh, noon in Washington, North Korean Foreign Minister Ri Yong-ho contended that he and his compatriots called for the removal of partial UN sanctions, specifically sections of five, sections of five rev- 
resolutions that impede the civilian economy and the livelihood of our people, according to a translation by North Korea News. Catherine Killo, a Roger L. Hale fellow at the Plowshares Fund, wow, that's a weird name, uh, told Newsweek that she was inclined to believe North Korea's account, as it seemed difficult to believe that Kim would travel some 2,000 miles for nearly three days by train to Vietnam without realistic demands. Bolton, on the other hand, quote, does not want to deal with North Korea, Killo said. As long as he's involved in the process at all, we have to be very wary. Yeah, so um, I'm not surprised at all. This is how uh, Trump was undermined and Trump was tricked. Now, listen, to be clear, Donald Trump is a hawk. I mean, he's bombing eight different countries. He's gaslighting us on Afghanistan and Syria. He says we're going to get out. He said we're going to get out of Syria. We're still there. And then the week after he said we're getting out, he came out and said, I didn't say quick. Uh, for Afghanistan, he says we're getting out. No, he's not. Uh, we, we have 14,000 troops there. He's pulling it down to 7,000. 7,000 troops is still there and still a war and annoying and bad. So there's a little bit of gaslighting going on here. He's definitely a hawk. Look at what he's doing in Venezuela. Look at what he's trying to do with Iran. He's literally trying to do regime change there as well. So I'm not, this isn't like, oh, my God, let's all talk about how Trump is so pro-peace. No, this is a rare instance where I think Donald Trump's anti-Obamaism has led him to this position. He sees, oh, my God, Obama wasn't able to get some sort of a deal with North Korea, a long-term deal with North Korea. So now I have an opportunity here to kind of set myself apart from him, and I can brag about this forever, that I, did, I was able to do something Obama couldn't do. I was able to get a peace deal with North Korea. So it's a rare instance where he's stumbling on the right thing. Now, I'll fucking take it. I don't care if the motives are wrong. I don't care that he's taking credit when it's mostly the South Korean President Moon who's doing all the hard work. I don't care about any of that. I'll take it, man, and I'll give him credit. Credit where it's due. We're not at war with North Korea. If you want a peace deal, yeah, let's do this. Now, having said that, Trump is being undermined at every turn by his own uh, administration, his own cabinet. I'm sure Mike Pompeo is undermining this. I'm 100% sure uh, John Bolton is undermining this. And here are the working theories, and they make perfect sense to me. So... At the last minute, Bolton goes, oh, 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 I, look, man, I know that we're here to talk about the nuclear weapons, and that was the whole premise, but at last minute, dog, you got you to gotta let us uh, take your chemical and biological weapons, too. So you want, they're so slimy, man, because what did Bolton say a few months ago? He said, oh, we need to do the Libyan model. Well, what happened in Libya? He gave up his weapons, and then the U.S. fucking toppled him in 2011. So he did what the U.S. wanted, made a deal with the U.S., and then we turned around and stabbed him in the back anyway. Now, you think Kim Jong-un doesn't know that? So he shows up to this meeting with the understanding, okay, this is about nuclear weapons. Got it. Let's have the conversation. And Bolton steps in and is like, chemical and biological too, bitch. You got to give those up also. Whoa, what the fuck? Now, If that sounds ridiculous, it's because it is, and because that's the point, and because Bolton knows he can't say yes to that, and Bolton's trying to torpedo the deal, which is exactly what the fuck is happening. Because what happens? And by the way, this is, I mean, if I'm Kim Jong-un and I'm told that, I get up and leave immediately. But what does he do? He he comes back and he goes, okay, you want to talk about uh, chemical and biological? Fine, let's have that conversation. You need to do partial uh, sanctions relief. So again, he's tit for tat. He's like, all right, you want to, let's, let's work it out. And uh, sanctions relief, that's something Trump has, in order to save face, yes, no, you have to act first, we can't fucking act first, we can't lift the sanctions first, we can't, you have to show us first, and then we'll lift some sanctions. They're like, um, so Trump's like, no, there will be no sanctions relief. So in other words, look at how ridiculous this is. Because of John Bolton and the neocons, the position of the American government is as follows. You give up your nuclear weapons, 
You dismantle all nuclear technology, by the way, even nuclear technology that's just for power for the power grid. So give up everything nuclear involved, and then also biological and chemical weapons gone. And uh, what do you get in return? I don't know. We'll tell you at some point. Uh, maybe some sanctions relief, not total sanctions relief. Take it or leave it. So that's a, that's, that's a negotiation where one side says, you give me everything, I give you nothing. So you want to know why the talks fell through? Because that's the position Bolton staked on purpose, because he knows that he can't say yes to that. And that's fine, because Bolton doesn't want to deal. Bolton wants to do fucking regime change and wants to do a war. So now you know what's happening, and that 100% is what's happening. Again, this is the same guy who orchestrated every regime change war. They're currently doing it in Venezuela. They're currently doing it in Iran. They want to do it in North Korea. And they're annoyed at the fact that Donald Trump is trying to make peace in this instance, and that he wants some sort of a deal. And final point is this. Any kind of deal that would actually work in the real world would look exactly like the Iran deal. What's the Iran deal? Very simple. Iran says no nuclear weapons, no nuclear, nuclear weapons ever. The IAEA, International Atomic Energy Agency, gets to search our nuclear facilities, monitor our nuclear facilities, so you see we're only using this for power for our power grid and for research. So the breakaway time is an extended period of time, so we can't actually make a nuclear weapon. You would know immediately because of those regulators who are coming in and checking regularly. In return for that, sanctions relief. That's the Iran nuclear deal. It was a wonderful deal. The, probably the best thing Obama did. I would argue way better than even Obamacare, which was a half measure and not the best, even though it covered more people, yada, yada. One of the best things Obama did, 100%. So any actual deal that would happen in the real world with North Korea would look almost exactly like the Iran deal. So this just shows how Trump is an idiot, and he's not motivated by logic <laughs> or reason. He's just like, I don't know. I'm against Obama. Obama was for the Iran deal. I'm against it. Obama was, didn't get a piece of North Korea. Now I'll get one. So it doesn't matter that the deal would look exactly the same. But either way, he's not the problem here. To me, the real, well, actually, you know what, Don, wakey, wakey, bitch, you better hurry the fuck up and kick this guy out of your administration. Let me appeal to Trump's narcissism and his ego for a second. Hey, guy, you're being undermined by John Bolton. He's playing you like a fucking fiddle. You're folding like a cheap lawn chair to his tricks. Get him out of there. Get him out of there and make a fucking peace deal. Bolton is the problem. He's the number one problem. He's a neoconservative goon who never met a war he didn't like, and he wants another one. So, um... Let's get him out of the administration because you're never going to get a peace deal with that guy actively undermining it at every turn. And I guarantee you, behind the scenes, they're even talking about how they're undermining it. Pompeo, Bolton, maybe some members of the deep state in terms of CIA and people like that. Guarantee you, they're like, okay, what's our next trick to try to undermine this? So that's what's happening. You need to know that's what's happening. And they're the fucking problem. John Bolton is one of the most dangerous guys on earth, and that is not an exaggeration. So Laura Ingram gave a speech at uh, CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, and uh, she pushed this nonsense idea that Trump is anti-war, full stop. So um, let's take a look here, and then we'll talk more about it. Their mantra is resistance and revolution. As Reagan said, my old boss, he said, Republicans believe every day is the 4th of July, but Democrats believe every day is April 15th. My friends, we are the envy, not of the press corps perhaps, but the envy of the world because of this president's economic policies and his pragmatic, realistic approach to foreign policy. Donald Trump's policies actually work. 
Democrats and Never Trump, uh, I think they're Never Trumpers, they yearn for the old GOP of yesterday, uh, the GOP of capitulation and doubling down on, on wars and, and uh, being the policeman of the world. None of that stuff worked. Might have had noble intentions, but it was, an, it, it was epically failed. So uh, she thinks Trump is anti-war. Now put aside, he's still bombing eight countries, and we're still in Syria, even though he said we're getting out. We still have 7,000 troops in Afghanistan, even though he said we're getting out. Put all that aside. Trump is not anti-war. Okay. Um, She's implying that she likes this notion of being anti-war. Great. I support uh, whoever's anti-war. We agree on that. I don't care if you're a libertarian. I don't care if you're a paleoconservative. I don't care if you're on the left. If you're anti-war, great. I'm with you. I only think we should fight wars for defensive reasons. Okay, now having said that, is Laura Ingram actually anti-war? Well, you're going to be surprised to find out. No, that's not true. Take a look at this. This is a tweet from her. This is right uh, at the height of U.S. meddling in Venezuela, working our way up to a regime change coup. Um, She said in response to Ilhan Omar, who was, you know, tweeting anti-war sentiments, Marxists, Russia, China, and you support doing nothing. Perfect. It's almost like you're a hack. Laura Ingram, and you'll go along with Trump, whatever the fuck he does. And when Trump is pro-war, you're pro-war. Oh, you're anti-war? Do you support Elliot Abrams being in the administration? Do you support John Bolton being in the administration? Do you support our fucking meddling in Venezuela and movement towards regime change? Building up of troops on the border, by the way, which is happening right this second. So your anti-war rhetoric is rhetoric of convenience because you understand that politically being pro-war doesn't work. So politically, you do the rhetoric of anti-war, but then ultimately when push comes to shove, you support it. That's why you're trying to burn Ilhan Omar because she dares to be principled and says, no, I don't support intervention in Venezuela. Of course I don't. So you're a joke. You're a sad person. And I've seen a lot of this recently. You know, Tucker does the same thing. Talks a lot about being anti-war, ultimately supports Trump. Trump kept us in Syria, still in Iraq. He said, we're going to pull out of Afghanistan. All he did is draw down the troops from 4,000 to 7,000. This is the same head fake that Obama did. Obama did the same shit. Oh, yeah, I'm going to talk about how I'm anti-war. Anyway, let's yo-yo the troop levels. Down, up, down, up, down, up. And these guys fall right, they go right along with it because Trump is their political daddy, so they don't give a shit. They, they care more about the person than they do about loyalty to the principle, which is being anti-war. And now, you know, hopefully you see through it. All right, final story of the day, and I get to nurse my throat back to health for the rest of the day. All right, let's talk about um, heartbreaking story. Sorry to end on such a sad note, but this has to be covered. Incredibly sad story for everybody. This is uh, from Democracy Now! They say, a prominent disability rights activist and and attorney died this past Sunday after being refused an essential medication by her insurance company. Carrie Ann Lucas, who had a rare form of muscular dystrophy, helped pass legislation in Colorado to protect parents with disabilities from child welfare discrimination. In 2017, Lucas was arrested with several others after protesting Medicaid budget cuts with a 58-hour sit-in at Senator Cory Gardner's office. According to a message on Lucas's Facebook page, United Healthcare denied her coverage for an antibiotic last year, triggering a host of medical complications which led to her death. Carrie Ann Lucas was 47 years old and is survived by her four adopted children who are also all living with disabilities. Um, 
Now, this is a story from the same week. This is in CNN Health. $375,000 price leads disabled mom to ration meds. You know, uh, in most developed countries, it's free. When, when you need medicine, you just go and it's free. There are some where you have a small, like, copay, like 10 bucks, 20 bucks, whatever it may be. Um, but in many developed countries, you go to the pharmacy to get your medication, and it's free. You just show up, and you get it. And I always reference this movie because it's a great movie and because it's true, but uh, in the movie John Q, uh, Denzel Washington goes, sick help, sick help. That's how it should work. And he's right. That, that's exactly how it should work. And it's a crime that it doesn't work like that because we have the resources, easily have the resources to make it work like that. And in fact, we would save money over our current system if it worked like that. But we're not fixing it, and we're not fixing it because of the massive impact on our government because of the corruption in the system. And you have big pharma buying politicians. You have for-profit health insurance companies buying politicians. So all you see, best case scenario, is the Democratic Party's half measures till the cows come home. Worst case scenario is the Republicans who are just like, yeah, I don't care. Big pharma, rip us off all day. Health in, uh, for-profit health insurance companies, rip us off all day. Don't care. So Republicans are the do nothing and let the rotting system continue party. And the Democratic Party is let's do some half measures party. And then the people are suffering as a result of this. People are dying. They can't afford medication. You got $375,000 price tag on some of them. Listen, even people that have insurance oftentimes go bankrupt from medical bills. Isn't that crazy? Think about that. Even people who have insurance. You know, I, I know I've gone through the same shit you guys have gone through in terms of searching for plans. It's a nightmare. First of all, no plans cover dental. None. <laughs> I, I was looking, I was like, okay, does anything cover dental? Nope, nothing covers dental. And, and by the way, how ridiculous. It's like, it's like they're trying to make this, this distinction, like, well, your body's your body, but your teeth, I mean, come on. Like, uh, no, bitch, my teeth are part of my body. And of course, you can get a tooth infection, and that can spread, and it could be deadly, literally. So for, you to, for people to not include dental, for plants to not include dental, how stupid. Like, oh, yeah, we cover this, this, we don't cover that. What the fuck? Imagine, like, the idea of choice in, in health care, health insurance. Like, well, what plan would you like? What do you mean what plan would I like? If I get sick, I want health no matter what the fucking problem is. What am I supposed to do? Go through body part by body part? If my spleen is hurt, yes, I want coverage. But if my fucking kidneys, no, I'm good on the kidney front. It's not like a regular consumer product. It's just not. So we have a system with choice, unnecessary, cover everything, full stop. Um, and we have a system where even people who are covered, it's like, oh, you have a deductible of $10,000. Well, then I may as well not have coverage. Who the fuck is just like, oh, it's cool. Sure, I'll pay you $500 a month. And then when something happens... I got the first 10 grand, and then you kick in and help. Why am I even paying you if I have to pay the first 10 grand? What the fuck is that? Pay the first 10 grand? As if Bob, who works a regular day job, is like, oh, sure, let me grab my extra 10 grand I have sitting in the bank. What the fuck is this? That's our system. It's actually worse than that. What I'm giving is soft examples. The stories I just told you are the real examples. I mean, $375,000 price leads to disabled mom rationing meds. Now, what's going to happen to her? What's going to happen to people like her in that situation? Exactly what I just told you. Prominent disability rights activist died after being refused an essential medication. System's broken, dude. I wholeheartedly believe, wholeheartedly, there will come a time in American history 
50 years from now, 100 years from now, whenever it may be, where in the textbook, in the history book, they are forced to write about this era in American history and how fucked up our insurance system is and our healthcare system is, it will be looked at with the same kind of scorn and derision as like indentured servitude or slavery. I'm not kidding about that. It is so broken and so rotten and so corrupt and so backwards and so barbaric that nobody doing an objective analysis could look at this and go, well, it's just another way of doing it, and that's the way they did it back then, and we've evolved since then. And no, it'll be like these fucking monsters with their shitty for-profit health insurance systems, their shitty uh, pharma companies who have totally bought and owned the government through lobbying, they have utterly destroyed any semblance of a humane system and destroyed the country uh, by doing that. That's how this will be written about. And you guys are some of the people who are totally uh, already know this and already get a sense of it. And it's about raising the political awareness so everybody gets it and so that we can act to fight back and fix it. And that's why somebody like Bernie Sanders getting elected is so incredibly important um, because he's the only one who's actually going to fight on this front. And now you get a sense of just how bad it is. All right. I'm done, guys. Time to go rest the throat. Enjoy the rest of your day, everybody. I love y'all, and I'll talk to you soon. I'm out. Peace.